You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. What's up, Revolution? That was weak. Do it again. What's up, Revolution? Dang. That was good. That was loud. So, it's the last week of the semester for college students. How do you feel? Yes. Holly, thank you. I genuinely appreciate that. A few, you all just seem so burned out. Like, God bless you. Like, oh, it's so sad. I don't know if half of you aren't paying attention. Or, no? They were playing the 21 pilot song and said, I'm trying to sleep. Guns for hands. That's, I think you all are in line with that song right now. Um, no, if you bunch of a smart aleck, whatever. Anyway, so it's the last week of, of uh, the semester for the college students, and genuinely, I'll be praying for you guys as you're taking your finals, uh, not to say that you shouldn't study. Um, but I, I'll say this, and I'll, I've, I, talk, I think about this a lot, and I talk to some of you guys about this whenever we meet together throughout the week. Um, Rev has always been blessed to have an abundance of college-aged people. Right? Like, I, don't, I don't think you guys like, fully understand. Um, one of the people that we receive, one of the groups we receive funding from, um, they, they say one of the reasons why that they have funded us for seven years, right? This is insane. We're going on eight years with this group, and usually you only get funded for a few years, and then you're supposed to give them money back. <laughs> not that it's like a debt thing, but you're supposed to then support other churches that need help because you should be not needing help anymore. Um, but they've been continuously helping us for going on eight years uh, because we have such a high number of college students in this church, and it's like astounding to those people so like that, that's it's always been really cool we've all been, always been blessed to just have so many of you guys and uh i just want to say i just i love you guys a lot like all of you but like i really love the college students man um i'm only a couple years older than most of you but like i feel like you're my children i say it every week uh i can only imagine how much more your parents love you um but it's a blessing and a curse to have college students right because you're all pagan um <laughs> right but no um but it really, it is, it's, a, it's a blessing and a curse because um, on the one hand, we get to really, really reach Shawnee State University um, kind of in like an unparalleled fashion. Um, not a lot of churches, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are some trying to reach out to Shawnee and, and God bless their efforts. Um, and, and we're one of them, so I'm not trying to make a blanket statement about all churches. But we get to reach the college really well. Um, that's the blessing. Uh, the, the curse is that people cycle out, Right? Like, who, who, who's a Scioto County resident that's been to Revolution for more than five years, or for more than four years? Right, it's like ten of us, right? This church looks, not, every three or four years, this church looks nothing the same. It's like ten or twenty people from Scioto County that live here, and then everyone else shifts, and it's really strange. Um, but it feels like we start over with like half or more of our congregation every four years, and that's kind of the curse. But one of the cool things about this unique situation that we find ourselves in is we get people from all kinds of backgrounds. Right? We get people from unchurched homes, right? and we are super glad that you're here, people that didn't grow up in church. Um, but we get people that grew up Baptist, and people that grew up Catholic, and people that grew up Methodist, and Pentecostals, and like all kinds of different backgrounds. And it's super cool to see, um, that, that we, and, and we get this opportunity to grow with you guys and teach you guys um, what the Bible says for a few years. But then you end up going back to wherever it is that you came from, or wherever it is that God is going to send you to. Um, 
Like Revolution, I've talked to some of you guys about this. It's kind of like a training ground, I feel like, sometimes our church is. Like we get people in, um, oftentimes don't know a whole lot about Scripture, maybe know some stuff about Jesus, but have never been like rigorous in the study of the the Scripture, um, or seen like verse-by-verse teaching of the Scripture. Um, So so we take this opportunity whenever we get all these new faces in to train people in what the Bible says, and in good doctrine, and in what that practically looks like to apply that in service to your community and loving people in the church body that you find yourself in and sharing the gospel with people at work and, and at school and at your job and in your family. And evangelism is the, the word for that. Um, all that stuff. Uh, we get to train you guys and then we get to truly grow with you and truly build good relationships and begin to love each other. And then we send you away, <laughs> right? It's like a boot camp for Christians. Uh, I've heard it described that way before. Um, I say all that, again, because this is the final, half of you guys are going home for the summer. Um, So some of you are going to go home, and some will be back, but some of you guys are never going to come back. I'm looking at any any seniors that we have here, because I know we've got a couple. Some of you guys aren't coming back. Um, So in light of that, tonight's message uh, could not be any more appropriate than what it is. Um, And I hope hope I'm not sounding like you guys are going to die whenever you leave here. (laughs) Some of you guys aren't coming back. Like, we're going to war or something. It's like Braveheart. <laughs> like, all men die, but not all men truly live. Let's go. No, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm just being really heavy. I miss you guys when you're not here. Um, but, again, this is a super appropriate sermon in light of those facts. Um, tonight we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke, um, we're going to see Jesus call us to the single greatest task that he's ever called us to. Um, and that's proclaiming his good news. It's proclaiming the Gospel. Um, the proclamation of, of the good news about Jesus, that, that God has decided to forgive sinners by faith in Jesus Christ, is the heartbeat of a true Christian's life. It's the pulse. It's, it's what we do. It's what we're looking for opportunities to do all the time. And our whole life revolves around this. Um, and this is what we're called to do by Jesus Christ himself, no matter where we find ourselves in this life, no matter what city we live in, no matter what country we live in. Uh, we actually have a missionary brother with us named Nahum. Uh, he's actually planning on going to Norway, right? So no matter where you are, what you do, whatever, you're supposed to be proclaiming the gospel. Right? So I, I want you to know this. That this command, though, I'm not just talking to college students, obviously. This command is not just for college students who are going to various places this summer. This is for every single person in here who calls himself a Christian. For all Christians, no matter where we are, home, work, school, to your family, to your friends, whatever, we are to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone we see, everywhere we go, without exception and without excuse. This is the Great Commission, is what it's called in Matthew. It's a little bit different here in the Gospel of Luke. Um, But this is all important. Everything else that we do pales in comparison to this. No matter how, how much good we do for the community, right? Sharing the gospel is the, the most important thing. Everything else absolutely pales in comparison. So my prayer for this past, this past week ha- has been that we would take seriously this command from Jesus. And not just be pew-sitting Sunday Christians. But we would take this message to heart. And then begin to f- fulfill this great commission that Jesus has given to us. To, to proclaim his message, just to be the one who heralds this good news. Who proclaims this message. And then watch him work. That's what he's calling us to do. All right, before we get into the text, um, this is a super long intro, right? Uh, before we get into this text, um, I want to recap a little bit of what we talked about last week because we're picking up right in the middle of a chapter. Um, 
And so last week we talked about these two disciples, and they're on the way towards a city called Emmaus. This is right after Christ has been crucified, and this is on the third day. And Jesus has been raised from the dead, but they don't know it yet, right? And these dudes are walking. They're, they're disciples of Jesus, um, and they're discussing what happened to Jesus. And they're having a really serious conversation. And then Jesus appears to them, right? He like, comes up walking alongside them on the road, and uh, they don't recognize him. Which is hilarious to me. It just makes me laugh. It says, like, God kept them from recognizing him. And then Jesus begins to talk with them um, and ask them, you know, like, what are are you guys discussing? You know, what's going on? Why do you guys seem so upset? And these disciples did not believe that Jesus had been resurrected, right? They had heard stories from a couple of people that they were friends with. uh, The women that the disciples were all friends with um, had went to his tomb and said that he had been raised, but they didn't believe it, Um, And then Jesus proceeds to go through the scripture with them and show them that God promised suffering, death, resurrection, and ultimately glory to the Messiah. So he opens up the scriptures to them. um, And then later on that evening, Jesus sits down to break bread with them. And then God opens their eyes so that they can know it's Jesus. Right? So they didn't recognize him. He breaks bread in front of them. They're sitting down to a meal. Boom. They recognize him. And then he disappears. If you don't believe me, Luke 24, read it. Right? It's one of the craziest lines. He's boom, vanishes. Um, and they then run back to Jerusalem immediately to tell the others that Jesus is, in fact, alive and has been raised from the dead. And then the last verse that we looked at said Jesus had already appeared to Peter as well. So just kind of wanted to recap that. I hate it whenever I go to a church and they just drop you off right in the middle of a, a passage of the Bible and I have no idea any context of what's been going on. So there's our recap. That's kind of where we're at. We're in Luke chapter 24, verses 35 through 49, and we're going to break it up into a couple of blocks. Um, if you're here and you're new, you're going to see some blue Bibles uh, in the backs of those pews. Take those home. That, that is not stealing. That is our gift to you. I actually got my Bible stolen yesterday at Free Market. God bless them. I hope they read it. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit upset. I had people praying for me about it. But those Bibles, that's not stealing to take the blue ones, so have at them. Uh, <laughs> I'm bitter, right? Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, Okay, but Luke 24, starting in verse 20, or 35, Luke writes this. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road, and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. So just boom, just Jesus right in the middle of them, boom, appeared in the middle of the room. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Where, why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. And still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. Which that last bit always struck me as weird until I started studying. He's like, hey, any, uh, by the way, anyone got anything to eat up in here? Like, just Jesus, just like casually asking you for a piece of fish. Um, struck me as funny when I was studying it. Um, okay, but I, I want to stop there and, and talk about some, some stuff, a big theme of what we just read. Um, one theme of many, right, I, I thought about dividing this sermon up into two sermons and going a couple of different places, but one theme of many themes we could take away from that is this, it's the easiest one, Jesus is proving that he is truly risen from the dead, right, easy enough, I didn't quite catch that though, I don't know if you guys caught that, he's really trying to prove it, he appears to them, right, he speaks to them, he beckons them to examine him, 
right? Uh, older translation says, he says, handle me, which made me laugh because I mean, like, handle me, like he's wanting to like, fight him. But he's telling him, like, like touch me, like, touch my hands and, and feet and touch me and know that I am really me, right? And then he eats in front of them, right? So what he's doing is he's, he's saying, I am not a ghost. I'm not an apparition. I'm not a spirit. I am really alive, right? He, appeal, he appeals to their, um, to their sight. He appeals to their hearing, to their sense of touch, right? He eats in front of them. Ghosts don't eat. Last time I checked, he does all this stuff, and he's proving to them, I am really alive. So he's proving to his followers that he is risen. Now, this has a lot of, of really serious implications, but one I, I want to point out, because I think it sets the stage for the next few verses that we're going to read. In, in, in proving to them that he has truly been risen from the dead, the implication is that he is everything that he ever claimed to be. His resurrection vindicated him. He claimed that he was the Son of Man. Referenced in Daniel chapter 7, that the Son of Man would have sovereign power and that the nations would bow before him and that he would be seated at the right hand of God in power. Right? To see, he claimed to be the Son of Man. He claimed to be the Son of God. Right, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son. He claimed to be the Lord of all. He claimed to be God in the flesh. God incarnate. And everything's proved to be true by His resurrection. Right? This means that this. Jesus has ultimate authority given to Him by God the Father. That's what His resurrection really means. He now has, or he, he's always had authority. But this is just vindicated. It's, it's proof that He, he is... Lord, he's king of everything, which implies this, all of, the, all of the words that come out of his mouth, all of his commands are divine, divine commands to be obeyed, right, they were always divine commands, right, he never ceased to be God, right, he was 100% man, 100% God at the same time, if you want to look it up later, it's called the hypostatic union, there's your five dollar word of the sermon, look that up, all right, but he, totally God, totally man, never ceased to be either, he always was that way, but now his commands are shown and proven to be divine and are to be obeyed. All right, now, the disciples would now understand that truth like never before. I, I'm convinced of that. Like, right, I'm, and I'm not saying that they didn't believe that he was the Son of God and they didn't believe all those things before. Right? They, they might have believed that in the past or maybe assented to it or like, I think that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? They maybe were in that realm, some of them, but now... On Jesus proving to them that he's been raised from the dead. It would have hit them like never before. Right? It would have finally clicked in their head exactly what he meant. Exactly that he, he, everything he claimed he actually is. Right? So I, I would imagine there's this click going off in their head saying, He didn't just die. He actually died for our sins. Right? He didn't just die an awful death. He actually died to suffer all the wrath that we deserve from God because we're sinners in our place. He really died for our sins. Uh, it would have clicked for them. He's not just this spiritual guru teacher like the Dalai Lama, right? He's actually God in the flesh. Right? It would have begun to, began to click for them. Um, and that made me think of this. And, and this has to be said, especially because I'm not going to see any of you guys, some of you never again, um, in church. <laughs> not that, again, not that we're dying. Um, but, but it made me, made me think of this. Um, often people who grow up in church, right? And I, I know a lot of us here did, not all of us, but quite a few of us. Often people who grow up in church say that they believe Jesus is the Messiah. They believe he is God. They believe he is Lord of everything. Um, but for many who profess to have faith in Jesus, right? For many who claim to have faith in Jesus... Those truths have never clicked for them. Right? Those truths haven't been 
They're not real to them. They're just things that they say. Because it's what you're supposed to say because they grew up in church. Right? Those truths aren't real to them. And, and their lives prove it. Their lives prove that that's not real to them. And they prove it because they don't live in obedience to Christ. I'm not saying that we're saved by obedience. We're saved by faith alone. But obedience to Jesus' commands is the evidence of the fact that we've been saved. Right? But we see people, we know that it's not clicked for them that Jesus is truly God. That Jesus is the Lord of all because they don't have any reverence for Jesus. They don't live as if he has all authority over them. Right? And because of that, that it's not clicked for them. Um, for, for many people who claim to have faith in Jesus. Because of that, a really foolish theology has crept into some churches. Right? Like a, a, a foolish belief has crept into some churches. That at, that at one point in time, you can give your heart to Jesus in faith, in like say a sinner's prayer or something like that, and then be saved. But at a later time, you can give your life to Jesus. But you were saved the whole time. A really foolish theology, that, that's the foolish theology that I'm talking about, has crept into the church. And it doesn't work that way. Right? You don't give your heart to Jesus in faith today and then 10 years down the road give your life to Christ. It doesn't work that way. That is a completely foreign concept to the Bible. Right? The Bible calls Jesus our Savior and our Lord Jesus. Which tells us that He is either both the Lord of our life, the one who tells us how to live and we obey Him, He's either our Lord and Savior both, or He is neither. Right? Like the, this might be an easier way to say it. The day that you gave your heart to Jesus in faith is the day that He takes command of your life. Right? There, there is no other way. Right? Now, that being said, we're still going to fail to submit perfectly to Jesus. And thank God there is grace and forgiveness to us daily because you're going to sin daily. And if you think you haven't sinned today, just read the Ten Commandments again and know that Jesus says thinking about doing something wrong is equal to doing something wrong in God's perspective. Everyone's a sinner. We all need grace daily. I'm not saying that you're going to submit to Jesus perfectly. But if we've truly given our heart to Christ in faith, we will begin to submit all things to Jesus. We'll begin to strive to submit. You're going to fail, but the fight begins. That's the mark of true saving faith in Jesus. So... I said that to say that it has to click for us that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus proves his ultimate authority over us. Right? Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says that line a lot of us know. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. Right? He's saying, I have all authority. We have to really believe that. That has to get into our hearts. Um, but again, what we just read, Jesus is proving to his disciples that he is alive. And by extension, everything he claimed to be true, everything that he claimed is true. True, and he has all authority. I'm picking it up again in uh, verse 44. Then he, Jesus, then Jesus said, When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, Yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And here's that message. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all of these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. 
All right, so we see Jesus after he gives them the proofs of his resurrection. He begins to do with these disciples what he did with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And that's, he begins to open up the scriptures about the Messiah. Right? And then after opening the scriptures, he opens the disciples' minds to see and truly understand and believe that the Messiah must suffer and be raised from the dead to save sinners. Right? This is what God's plan was the whole time. The, the book of Isaiah, uh, a prophet, said that it was the Lord's good plan to crush Jesus. Meaning in our place. A lot of times people don't understand what do we mean Jesus died for your sins. It means he died in your place. He suffered and bore your sin He bore your sin on the cross and then suffered God's wrath that you deserved as your substitute in your place so that by faith in Him, you would owe God nothing for your sin. Rather, He would owe you nothing. He would owe you no justice. There would be no wrath coming your way because Jesus Christ has suffered all of it and absorbed it in your place. Jesus opens their mind to see that truth. That he had to be the substitute. He had to be the sacrifice in their place for them to be reconciled to God because their sin was too weighty. God couldn't ignore their sin. And Jesus explains that all of that was God's plan. Right? In verse 44 he says, All of these things must be fulfilled. And that means this, that they were foretold by God, spoken through the prophets, and then recorded in the Bible. Now, I... I, I just want to take a second and say that means that this plan is infallible. Whatever God decrees, here's a little bit of theology for the day, whatever God decrees must happen because He can't be wrong. And He is all-powerful. Not only does He know everything, He's all-powerful. He makes it all happen. He is infallible. Therefore, His Word is infallible, which means whatever He foretold will be fulfilled. So that's something we need to keep in mind. Keep that in mind for the remainder of this sermon. Right. But what, are the, what, what was foretold? Specifically, Jesus mentions three things. One, the suffering and death of the Messiah. Right. Two, the message, or the, the message, the Messiah, I can't read my own notes, the Messiah would be raised on the third day. That's number two. And the third one is this, that the message would be proclaimed to all nations in the Messiah's name and in his authority. Right, so those are the three things. Now, just throwing this out there, if you guys haven't been following the story very long or you don't know anything about Christianity, um, two of those three things has already happened. Right, Jesus has already suffered and died, and he's been raised from the dead. Right? Two of the three things that Jesus says must happen, must be fulfilled, infallibly must be fulfilled, um, have been fulfilled by Jesus because he's the Messiah. The last, obviously, is yet to be fulfilled. I hope I don't sound condescending. I've got to walk myself through things like this, too. Um, but the last thing is yet to be fulfilled. Uh, and here's what's interesting. It won't be done by Jesus. <laughs> this last thing will not be done by Jesus personally. He says this message will be proclaimed in the authority of his name, is what verse 47 told us. Proclaimed in the authority of his name, which means this. It's going to be done by messengers... Bearing the authority of the risen Messiah, Son of God, God the Son, Jesus Christ. All right, so that's what that means. It's going to be done by messengers bearing the authority of Jesus' own words. All right, so Jesus is giving this task then to those of us who have faith in him. Right? When I say have faith in him, people who trust the promise that God made about Jesus, that, that he's suffered their wrath in their place, and that he is Lord, that he is God, that he has been raised on the third day. All right, these, are, these are people 
that Jesus is giving this task to are those of us who have been saved by him and recognize and submit to his lordship. Right? So if you're a Christian, a lot of this next bit is for you. Right? So, just throwing this out there, I don't know how you guys feel. Uh, if Jesus is sending us out with this task, then we must understand what we're to proclaim. Right? So we're going to break down this message. Right? This message that Jesus commissions us to tell, and it is the most beautiful news we could possibly ever tell anybody. And, and I'm going to fail miserably to try to show you just the beauty of this, but my prayer all week has been that it will crack you like it's, like it's across the face like it never has before. And the message is this. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. This is the most beautiful thing we could possibly ever hear. So if you're a Christian, don't you dare tune this out. You didn't believe this one day and you never have to deal with it ever again. This message should bear its weight on us. Every time that we hear it, it should break us down for our sin. Every time that we hear it, and then excite us every single time that we hear it. Nothing should get us more amped than the gospel. Alright, but let's break this message down. There's forgiveness of sins. Sin. What is sin? Sin is an offense against God. This is as simply as I can put it. An offense against God. It's glad rebellion against God is one of the ways that the Bible defines sin. That God has commanded us to love Him and find our joy and our peace in Him above all other things. That, that, that we're, to, we're to honor Him. We're to obey His commands. Whatever He says, we accept His authority over our life. And whatever He says to do, we actively go and do. Like love people and serve people. Um, proclaim this message. Whatever he tells us not to do, right? Whether it be sexual immorality, like right, like like sleeping with your girlfriend, you shouldn't be doing that, or looking at pornography, um, or you know, getting hammered, or um, talking in a hateful way towards people, or, or whatever it might be, breaking the law in various aspects, whatever it is, right? God tells us not to do that. We do those things instead, right? It, it's it's refusing to do sin is refusing to do what God has commanded positively, or it's refusing to abstain from what He has negatively commanded us to do. That's what sin is. And this, is a, this sounds so silly. Sin is real. Right? Like, a lot of people don't believe in sin. Like, ah, I really don't think God's that offended. <laughs> right? Or like, I don't know if I really even believe God exists. Um, I used to be there. I used to be an atheist. If any of you guys are new and you don't know my story, we can talk later. Um, but just throwing this out there. Um, whether or not you believe in it, whether or not you agree with it or disagree with how I've just defined sin, it really doesn't matter because this is what the Bible says. This is what God has revealed about sin. Right? But sin isn't just actions either. Like Jesus like, describes it as thoughts. Right? If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in God's eyes. Right? These are thoughts. Um, if you hate someone, right, then you've murdered them in your heart as far as God's concerned. This is words. This is the way that we talk to people. This is the things we say we would like to do, even though I would never do that, but I'd like to. Um, and these are deeds, too, like the actual actions of sins. Right? But sin starts in the heart. And here's the thing. If sin's real, you have to know, just hearing that description, you have to know that you've sinned. You have to know that you've sinned. Have you always found your joy in God? Have you always found your comfort in what Jesus Christ has done for you? Have you always been generous with the money that you have? 
Have you only ever had eyes for your wife? Have you lusted in your heart? Have you stolen anything? Have you spoken in a way to someone that you ought not have spoken or spoken about somebody behind their back in a way that you ought not have done? All of that. Everyone has sinned. And a lot of times, I said this a couple weeks ago, we take things that are common, right? Like, oh, everyone's done it, so it's really not that big of a deal. No, there should be no comfort whatsoever the fact that I've said everyone has sinned. That should not bring us any comfort or make us think, oh, it's common, so it's not severe. Mm -mm. Scripture tells us that sin deserves punishment. God's decreed that he's a just God. Sin is an offense against him. He's holy. He's pure. He's only ever done good things for us. So sin is the worst thing we could do. So sin deserves the worst punishment that we could possibly um, conceive. And God says that's hell. That's his unmitigated wrath for all of eternity. Separation from all of his blessing and only his punishment. That's hell. Justice demands it. God will not violate his own character. He says, I am just. If you break the law, I must punish And all have sinned. This should be the most terrifying fact for anybody, ever. Let that weigh on you for a second. You are guilty. You know those moments where you're like laying in bed and you're like, man, I feel like I've done something wrong. It's because you have. You're guilty. You don't feel guilty. You are guilty. Everyone has sinned, myself included. I'm not up here on a pedestal. All, myself included, we're all guilty. We all know that we've done wrong. Think about that. You know in your heart of hearts you've done wrong. You've not loved God. You've not obeyed God. So sin is real. Here's a good part. There's forgiveness of sins. There's forgiveness of sins. That's the message. It's the first word Jesus says. Forgiveness. That means pardon. You, you sinned against the king of the universe and you deserve to go to hell. But Jesus says God freely grants pardon from the penalty for sin by the sacrifice of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Right? Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or saved, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That is the most beautiful passage in the Bible. The word propitiation is throwing you off. Don't worry, it threw me off for a long time. It means this. It's a beautiful word. It's my favorite word. The satisfier of God's wrath. The one who appeased God's anger for sin. So we are saved by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the one who would satisfy his wrath by his blood to be received by faith. By the work of Jesus Christ, Jesus absorbed the debt that we owed God and then suffered God's wrath. In our place as a substitute. That's what forgiveness is, by the way. It's the absorption of a debt. We owed God for our sin. and He owed us in return for our sin. But he says, through faith in Jesus and what he has done in your place, I will not hold this debt against you anymore. In fact, the Bible teaches us that he gives us the righteousness of Christ to be judged by. We bring him nothing but our sin. And he says, I'll take it from you and I'll give you the perfect obedience in the life of my son who did not deserve my wrath. He gives us his righteousness that doesn't even belong to us. 
He gives it to us freely by faith. But this forgiveness, right? Sin is the barrier separating us from God. Sin and its penalty is the barrier between us and God. But by faith in Jesus Christ, in trusting in Jesus, God promises to remove it. And like we talked about last week, we know God's good on His Word. We know Christ did not die for nothing. We know we can trust Him because Christ has been risen. So there's forgiveness of sin for all. For all. Let's think about this for a second. That, that means this. If you're a Christian, as we proclaim this message, it means that this declaration of pardon, this declaration of forgiveness by faith alone in Christ alone is given indiscriminately. We give this call to everyone. Sin is real. You've committed sin, but God offers pardon through Christ. We give it to everyone. One of the cool things about the gospel is it knows no barriers. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're educated or whether you're simple, whether you're weak or whether you're powerful, regardless of nation, regardless of race, ethnicity, religious upbringing, what society says about you, whatever it is, it does not matter. The Bible teaches us in Revelation chapter 7 9 that all kinds of people will be saved. Every tribe, tongue, nation. God will redeem people from all walks of life. So we proclaim this message to all. So I want you to know this. If you're here, and I know a lot of us feel this way, I've done too much, I can't approach God. You're right. You can't approach God on your own. You can't. He's too holy and you're too much of a sinner, myself included. But he says anyone can approach him through faith in Christ. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. Jesus is the only way that we can even talk to God. What Jesus has done for us is the only way we can approach God for all. That means this. No matter what you've done, if you're a heroin addict, if you're a child molester, rapist, drug dealer, it doesn't matter what you've done, whether you're a prostitute or a soccer mom. Legit doesn't matter. No one is too far. Anyone can be saved. Anyone. This is glorious. This is good news for me. I know what I've done. This is great news for me. So God graciously makes forgiveness available to undeserving sinners, regardless of what we've done or who we are or what anyone says about us, including what you say about you. This is beautiful. But there is a condition. There's a conditional clause in the sins. I think, I think that's what you'd say in English. There's forgiveness of sins for all who repent. Who repent. Repentance is the human response demanded, not asked for, demanded by God to this message. Right, the book of Acts, we see, I believe it's Peter saying, God demands you repent. Right, this is the human response demanded by God to this message. What is repentance? Right? It's a church word that gets thrown around a lot. And the Bible uses it, so we ought to still use it too, but let's define it. Um, I use this one a lot. Uh, the, one of the... One of the Root words, I think, for repentance in Greek is metanoia. It means to acquire a new mind. Right? Like par- not paranoia, right? Not to be like thinking other people are out to get you. Metanoia, right? Repentance means this, to require a new mind about the way to God. Now, what's the natural mind that we're born with? What do we think? I need to be really, really good and be really moral, right, and obey all these commands and do all this stuff in order to approach God. No way. You have to acquire a new mind about the way to God that God himself says is faith and not obedience. Trusting his promise about Jesus, not how good of a person you are, not your works. We're going to sing a song later that says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. 
We come to Christ completely empty, saying, none of my good works can save me. Only your blood can save me. Only your sacrifice on the cross can save me. So we must acquire a new mind about how we're going to get to God. We have to acquire, acquire a new mind about um, our own inability to overcome sin, that I can't pull myself uh, up by my bootstraps. Like a lot of churches will tell you, you can just, just work harder, and you can save yourself, and you can overcome sin by yourself. We have to recognize that, no, I am a slave to sin apart from Jesus Christ, and there's nothing that I can do to set myself free. My will is broken. I can't will myself into obedience apart from Christ, because my will is broken and it needs restored. My desires aren't right, and only Jesus can give me those right desires. We have to acquire a new mind that Jesus Christ has paid our penalty and that we must depend on him alone. But we also have to recognize some stuff about ourselves, that we are rebels. You're not a good person. You're really not. I'm not, I'm not either. I'm not here like pointing the finger. You're not a good person. Deep down in your heart, you know that. Like, you know you've done crap that you're really embarrassed of and ashamed of, right? Like, again, we could roll your last 24, maybe even 12 hours for some of us up here on, on this, like Cooley talked about a couple weeks ago, and you come, you run out of here. Or at the very least, you would agree with the rest of us that you're not a good person. You know you're not a good person. We have to recognize that we are all rebels against God and that we deserve hell. That we are absolutely undeserving of Him to do anything good for us. And we have to recognize again, I can't say this enough, our only hope is through Jesus' work in our place. Jesus in my place. That's our only plea. So in a nutshell, it's this. Repentance is throwing yourself on the mercy, grace, direction, and plan of God. That's what repentance is. It's throwing yourself on His mercy. And here's the cool thing. God says that He will not oppose the humble. He says He gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. People who won't throw themselves on His mercy, He calls them His enemies. He says only wrath and hell awaits them because they refuse to accept this message of free grace through Jesus. But He gives grace to the humble. It's beautiful. Right? So this is the only message that matters. Seriously, this is the only message that matters because this is the only thing that can save. There's no other name that can save. Period. So if this is the only message that matters, then this is all important for us to, to proclaim. Jesus is risen. He has authority. He says this is the message that must be proclaimed. So the crazy thing about this message is that it forces everyone in this room to respond, right? I'm talking to believers and, belie- and unbelievers, actually. So this is, this is going to be fun. Um, everyone has to respond. Jesus never gives us a, a space of middle ground. He claims too many crazy things. He claims to be God. He claims to have died in our place for our sin. He, he claim, uh, Christians, we claim that he was raised from the dead, right? There's too many claims about Jesus that we can't just shelve him and do nothing with him. Everyone has to respond. So unbelievers, if you're here and you're not a Christian... You can accept or reject this message. Apathy is actually not an option with this message, right? To be apathetic about this is to reject it. Jesus says, whoever does not gather with me scatters against me, right? So we can accept or reject this. There is no middle ground whatsoever. Jesus Christ himself says, repent or perish. Repent or perish. You can submit to Christ and take this free offer of grace In faith, just by trusting that Jesus did this for you, or you can suffer God's wrath. Repent or perish, submit or suffer. But here's my question. If you're here and you still feel rebellious 
against this message that you don't want to submit to it. I would, I would just pose this question because I had someone pose it to me whenever I was, I was an unbeliever and it just bounced off me like it was nothing. But I, I just see my utter foolishness now that I'm on the other side of this. Why would you reject such a gracious offer of pardon from the God that you have rebelled against? Would you not accept a pardon from the president if you've committed murder and he said, I, no death penalty for you. Here's a pardon freely. Just believe that I'll give it to you. Would you not accept a pardon from a king? And that's just over your life, not your eternal life. Why would you reject this pardon of grace from the God you've rebelled against? I I can't implore you enough to trust in Jesus' work in your place. On the cross, he says, it is finished. That means there's nothing more for you to do but believe and follow him. You can't save yourself, but he did. He saved you. So unbelievers, you can accept or reject. Believers... Rather, professing believers, those of us who claim to be Christians, we have two options. We can verbally proclaim this message or we can be silent. Right? Uh, you guys ever heard that, that quote, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words? That's garbage. <laughs> Seriously. Like, it might make you feel inspirational. You saw it on Instagram a dozen times. I don't care. Uh, that, that quote is absolute, pure garbage. Does that, does that idea not fly in the face of what we just saw Jesus say? This message will be proclaimed to the nations. Proclaim verbally with words. <laughs> Preach the gospel if necessary. Use words. I understand the sentiment behind it. We need to live out lives that reflect the gospel. But to live out a life, like, again, you, you'll die in your workplace before uh, someone will ask you, Hey, man, you were really kind. Why are you so kind to everyone? Is it Jesus? Like, that's never going to happen. I promise. That's never going to happen. Verbally proclaim this message. Again, we can verbally proclaim it or we can be silent. But here's the thing. God revealed in Scripture this message would be proclaimed. That means that this is our job. If you're a professing believer in here, if you claim to be a Christian, this is your job. Now, hear me out. I am not saying this because this is what the American dream, beat your chest, like, Western Christianity that I hate. I am not saying, you're the only hope for God's plan to continue. It's all up to you, or Jesus died for no reason. I've heard those messages. I've heard that. Jesus died, and if we don't proclaim the gospel, he died for nothing. I am not saying that. Um, God doesn't depend upon men. Let's lay this before you. Um, His plan will proceed with or without you as an individual. I promise you that. We see it all over the Bible. God's purposes cannot be thwarted one ounce. He always accomplishes what he desires to do. And he says the proclamation of the gospel is the result of God's plan. So he does not rely on human will. Now follow me on this. This is an argument. Human will is sinful by nature. You're born a sinner. Your will is sinful. Your will is only to sin from the moment that you're born. And our will would never, on its own, cooperate with and submit to God's plan, ever. That's why God acts first on us and changes our hearts by the Holy Spirit, right? Like you didn't just rawly bring yourself to faith. God worked in you first, right? And in doing that, what did God do? He transformed your will to desire, right, and cooperate with his plan. This is what Christians talk about whenever you hear that churchy term, born again, This is that God's worked in you first. John chapter 3, verse 3. Check it for yourself. I'm not making this up. This is what Jesus is talking about, is you being transformed to cooperate with God's will. 
So if God doesn't depend upon human will because it's too sinful, but before we can come to faith, He transforms our will to desire to cooperate with Him in His will and plan for our life is that we would proclaim the gospel. This tells me this, that if we refuse to cooperate with this proclamation of the gospel, then you have not been born again. You haven't been transformed. You are still in your sins. There has been no pardon for you because you have not truly put your faith in Christ. Like we talked about, it's not clicked. You say you've given your heart to Christ in, in faith, but you've not given Him your life. It doesn't work that way. You might speak worthless words claiming faith, but you haven't given your heart and your life to Christ. You haven't. If you refuse to cooperate with this message, if you refuse to proclaim this message to people, But all that being said, I don't want Christians here to get the wrong idea, right? If you're a Christian, I don't want us to look at this command, right? The word command just has such a negative connotation in our culture, right? It's like, I got to, I was commanded to do it, right? A Hebrew word for that found in the Old Testament is mitzvah, right? Super cool. It means, like, I'm privileged to obey this command, Right? So I don't want us to look at, at the word command, uh, the, the command of Jesus here in the wrong light. This is a privilege for us. It is, a, it is seriously, I, I thank God all the time that he has given me the privilege to preach to you, the privilege to, to have gospel conversations with people at the school or wherever I find myself out. I thank God for that. Think about this. You have received and believed this great news. And now your king is giving you a job to do with it because of it. Because you've been so transformed by it. Consider this. God is inviting us to work with Him. Seriously. He is is inviting us to labor alongside Him in His plan of salvation. This is astounding news. This is insane. I, I really haven't given this much thought in a long time. Who are we that God should allow us to be a part of this? For all the sinning that we've done. For all the sinning that we've done today and will continue to do. For all the failure that we have. That God would graciously decide to use weak, sinful people like us as instruments of salvation in His hands. This is crazy. What a privilege He's giving us. And aside from just the raw excitement that we should have for the work ahead, we see in verse 49 that Jesus says that He has sent the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and make us bold for this task. We have no reason to be afraid. Upon faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to reside in us, which means the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us, that we can be bold to proclaim this message. We can do this, not by our power, but by the power of the Spirit in us. That's why Jesus says, hey, wait till the Spirit comes and then go proclaim this message. The Spirit that lives in us, we don't have to wait. I want us to realize this, in light of all that stuff I just said about the Holy Spirit. And God's work first in us before we would come to faith. I want us to realize this. Because of God's sovereignty and salvation, and His Holy Spirit in us, we cannot fail. We will not fail. Hear me out. You may not see many or any people come to faith you may not see anyone repent and believe the gospel. You may proclaim this message to your blue in the face to the same person for 50 years and they still not repent. I have family like that. 
you might get rejected and told to shut up every single time that you try to have a conversation with someone about this message that Jesus tells us to proclaim. You may never see anyone repent and believe, but that is not our job. That is not what Jesus is calling us to do here. He's not telling us to ensure others' repentance. He's not telling us to do that. Jesus is calling us to do this. Faithfully proclaim this message of good news to everyone we come in contact with. That's what we can be faithful to. God is the one who works in the hearts of men to bring them to faith. We do not and cannot work that miracle. We can't make spiritually blind people see. We can't bring spiritually dead people to life. We can't make people see the beauty of the gospel. That is for God and God alone to do. But what we are ensured to succeed at is telling people the message. That's what we will not fail at. That's what we cannot fail at by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. God will strengthen us and encourage us for the task. Our job is to be faithful to the message, not to save anybody. That gives me great confidence. That and the fact that God says he will save some. That he will save people. God's that sovereign. He says, I will save some. You can't save them. You just be faithful to the message, and I will use your weak words as a sinful man to save people. That should just be so encouraging to us to go and share this message with people. So go out and be bold. Whether you're going home or you're staying inside of Canada, whatever it is, wherever you're at, be faithful to the message and watch God work through you as weak as you are, because you are weak. But know this, God always accomplishes his purposes. This is our great hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being in control and promising that you will save people. God, this is the the best news that we've ever heard in our lives. God, excite our hearts. Even if it's the thousandth time we've heard it, God, make us excited for this, that we were once under your wrath, but now by the blood of Jesus we have been justified in your sight and you've credited his righteousness to our account and there's no more wrath for us. Make us excited about that. Give us an excitement that makes us want to go and tell people what you've done for them if they would believe. God, help us to be bold for the gospel and not be cowards. God, convict us whenever we refuse to take these opportunities. God, we know the opportunities are there. Help us not to be so foolish to think there's going to be a sign in the stars that we should talk to this person or that person about the gospel, but that we just know we're to proclaim this to everyone, all the nations. God, give us boldness for your message. But God, thank you for the message. This is the only message that will save anybody. And this is the message that we have been saved by. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.